This podcast episode is sponsored by 7investing. That's right. We are partnering up with 7investing to learn more about the latest innovation and developing trends in the investing world. We were so privileged to invite the founder and CEO of 7investing, Simon Erickson, to share with us the foundation of 7investing's investment principles and have him talk to us about investing in stocks for the future. I personally love how their mission is to empower you to invest in your future and to think like a long-term investor. So as a listener, you get to enjoy $25 US off on the first month of 7investing's monthly membership or annual membership, which you will have access to receive their start recommendations and lead advisor updates by simply entering keyword Goliath as the discount code. Now, back to the podcast episode. You are now listening to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Welcome to another episode of Me and the Market Goliath podcast. I'm your host, Kelvin. Today, we have not one, but two lead advisors from 7investing joining this episode. So we're very lucky to have two very qualified speakers as we're able to pick their brains on the healthcare industry. I have Dana Abramovitz and Luke Hallard with me today. And we're going to focus on the healthcare industry since it is still a trending issue as we're all trying to navigate past a sticky pandemic. We're also going to shine a spotlight on telehealth and telemedicine and how companies from these spaces are modernizing the way patients are being diagnosed and treated today. Jumping straight into Dana and Luke's bio, Dana's interest in health spans all aspects of the industry. From fitness and wellness to hospital systems and policy and everywhere in between. She received her PhD in biochemistry and molecular biophysics from Columbia University and did her postdoc at the Scripps Research Institute. She left academia to work for Ingenuity Systems and started her own video game company whose product was acquired by Ubisoft. After a decade in industry, she received her master's in management from Stanford University where she focused on healthcare investment and new ventures. After business school and prior to working at South by Southwest, she worked at Strand Life Sciences, a genomics and personalized medicine company based in Bangalore. Luke Hallard recently came out of retirement to become a lead advisor for 7investing. He primarily invests in technology and innovation with a current bias towards health tech and companies enabling the quote-unquote work-from-anywhere economy. Although Luke's portfolio spreads across many industries, a common theme with Luke's personal investments is that they all seek to make the world a better, less complex place. Prior to joining 7investing, Luke spent 25 years as a program director leading organizational change at HSBC Bank. His knowledge of conduct, financial crime risk, data privacy, sanction screening, anti-money laundering, and payments transparency may be able to provide us some insights into the risks of investing in a healthcare company. So Dana and Luke, I'm so privileged to have both of you today on my podcast. And this is my first ever group podcast episode. So thank you for helping the show achieve this milestone. My audience and I are eager to have you share with us your insights into the healthcare industry, helping us break down telehealth and telemedicine. It will also be insightful to get your thoughts on the trajectory of today's healthcare system, not to mention the prerequisites before investing in a telehealth or telemedicine company, which I personally believe will give us a snapshot of your investment philosophy. 
I'd love to kick off with Dana's background and how both of you came across Seven Investing before going to Luke's career story. I worked at a healthcare startup that really helped scientists understand the research that they were doing. So worked there for a decade, went to business school to really focus on healthcare and realizing that the healthcare companies need investors, but that it's really challenging for people outside of the industry to invest in healthcare, just because there are all sorts of complexities. There are different types of companies within the sector, right? So you have like hospitals and you have med tech, and then you have pharmaceuticals and every component of that is totally different and has different challenges. And a lot of times people who aren't part of the industry don't fully appreciate how complex it is and all the things that you need to consider when making an investment. So I went to business school to kind of bridge that gap and and help investors understand the industry to kind of make that a little bit easier for them. So you mentioned in my bio that I worked at South by Southwest. That's how I met Simon. He told me about Seven Investing and how to position open. And because this is something that I had always wanted to do, I jumped at the chance to be able to do that. So I cover all of healthcare because I've worked across the entire healthcare industry. So that's what kind of what I do. Hey, Kelvin, and it's fantastic to have an invitation to your show. Thanks for inviting us. I'm a really new joiner to the Seven Investing team. I joined the squad just in January, but I've been a growth investor for I'd say nearly 20 years. Actually, I used to run my own investment podcast before joining Seven Investing. That's how Simon found us. He guested on our show and I ended up joining Seven Investing, a firm I'd admired for well over a year as a subscriber. In terms of my own investing style, I would say I've gravitated towards growth investments, but really looking for companies that are set up to service the needs of tomorrow. What is society looking for in the next five or 10 years? In fact, my very first growth investment ever was in fact a med tech company, a firm called Intuitive Surgical. And I've tried to stay the course and not touch my stock in that company. It's done fabulously well. And it's a really a linchpin of my portfolio over the last 20 years. So I think med tech is interesting. I'm certainly not the expert that Dana is. And I do invest across a whole range of sectors. But when I go out looking for these exciting companies that are set up to service the needs of tomorrow, well, med tech and health tech often falls into that category. And it's really because as a society, we're all increasingly expecting to live longer, healthier lives. The term investing can be very unique and people are driven by different incentives or different reasons. I'm really curious to know what does investing mean to both of you? A simple answer, I would say, Genuinely, that investing gives me a chance to support the missions of the companies I most believe in. I've got a pretty broad portfolio, and I would say I'm proud of almost every company that I have an investment in. I think we're going to talk about one company possibly today that's in my portfolio I'm a little less proud of, but we'll touch on that when we come to it later. And I agree. I like to support companies that are doing good in the world and helping them support them. And I I talk a lot, we have a student call and just kind of getting young people to think about investing early and just how that sets you up for your future and just all sorts of opportunities. So just kind of including that as well. 
Thank you for sharing your definition in terms of what investing means to both of you. The main course of this episode is to really deep dive into the healthcare industry. There's just so much to talk about, the challenges, the tailwinds. I do want to break it down a step further because I know seven investing is all about studying disruptive technologies and the environment that surrounds it. Telehealth is definitely one. Telemedicine is another one. But I think a lot of retail investors or people that I know get confused on both of these terms with regards to the difference. And I was hoping you could define telehealth and telemedicine for our audience tuning in today. Well, let me jump in on that one, Kelvin. And I'll try and give you my real layman's view, because as I say, I'm not the expert in this space, but maybe that makes it a bit easier for me to explain to someone who's also not an expert. And I would say simplistically, actually, telemedicine is really a subset of telehealth. And actually, telehealth is a subset of med tech. There's a huge space. But let's think about some examples so we can bring that to life a little bit. I suppose, and Diana, keep me honest, telemedicine is really about delivering clinical outcomes remotely. So that's really talking to your doctor or your physician. So companies like Teladoc Health, which Kelvin, I know you and I are both invested in, sit firmly in that telemedicine space. Clearly, the sector as a whole has a lot of other capabilities it needs. And so if you zoom out from telemedicine to telehealth, we start to bring in lots of other types of medical services that also could be operated at a distance. So some examples there might be a firm you may have heard of, GoodRx, who are focused around delivering prescription drugs, or maybe also Doximity, who's really almost a LinkedIn, a social network service, an online networking service for medical professionals. So you can see it's not, when we're talking about telehealth, it's not necessarily clinical outcomes, but it's more the sort of broader set. And then as I zoom out again to the whole med tech sector, that's when we start thinking about not just remote delivery of services, but also actually medical devices as well, surgical robots, things like that. And there's some really exciting technologies in that space. I wanted to understand more about the opportunity which is essentially the total addressable market for these two important spaces. I know that in 2020, the telehealth market size was reported to be around 40.3 billion, and it pretty much doubled because of the global pandemic, because people cannot get outside of their houses and, and see a physician and get diagnosed. So there's a massive market opportunity. Where do you see telehealth market size what is the biggest potential in terms of how big it can be in the next couple of years? I've seen a whole range of estimates for this market, Kelvin, from the number you shared up to several hundred billion dollars. And actually, a really interesting McKinsey article I ran into a couple of weeks ago while I was bringing up to date my research on Teladoc Health. McKinsey estimated that telehealth utilization stabilize at 38 times higher than pre-pandemic. Enormous growth. As we come out of the pandemic, we're going to revert back to a mode where you may use your remote physician for some types of diagnosis, and you may still go see a, a real physical doctor for others. But I think the growth we've seen in the pandemic, a large part of that is going to stick around. And that 38 times higher, that may not be a crazy estimate of where things land up. And I think if we think about the different types of medical service, there are clearly some such as psychiatry and counselling, where telehealth is 
really very suitable. And patients do seem to value engaging with their medical practitioners on these platforms. It's convenient, it's cheaper, it's easier. There's no denial in terms of the enormous growth, especially the past couple of years. The exposure, the pandemic has really shined a light in terms of the need for better healthcare services and, and providers. What are some of the headwinds, tailwinds for telehealth and telemedicine and pretty much the healthcare industry as a whole? Telemedicine was kind of moving forward. And there was just a lot of work that was being done prior to the pandemic. And I know that there are a lot of companies that were trying to become prominent. So Teladoc, we've mentioned that company, they obviously were formed before the pandemic and were really fighting and, and making the groundwork against all the regulatory agencies in order to be prepared to do things. And they were up against a lot of regulations, a lot of people that were really skeptical about how things would work. And with the pandemic, fortunately, they had laid that groundwork. We had the technology. They had doctors on staff. They had figured out a lot of the problems, the regulatory problems, how to have a doctor who is living in California, but be able to treat a person that lives in Pennsylvania. And just like all those state regulations and, and just all sorts of different things that they have to encounter. And so when the pandemic hit, we were able to utilize that. I think we're going to continue to see that, just the use, just because all of the people that were skeptical about how this was going to work got to see it in action. So I think that kind of gets rid of a lot of the fear of like, will doctors be able to do this? Are patients going to be able to get the care that they need? We were able to figure out a lot of things and just see it in action. And so I think that that's going to help. And to build on that a little bit, in many ways, the pandemic has been the greatest tailwind, but it could also be a bit of a headwind as well as we start to come out of the pandemic. And I think there's a really interesting upcoming effect that our colleague Max Chatsko has got a very close eye on. I know, Donna, you're the expert and that's not myself, but maybe you can bring it to life. It's really around um, Medicaid reimbursement rates for telehealth. And at the moment, because of an executive order, companies like Teladoc are able to get paid by insurance companies. But that's up for review. I think it's been extended by the Biden administration through to November 2023. When that decision gets reviewed, if suddenly there are a range of services that don't get reimbursed the same level, well, that could be almost fatal to companies in this industry. Yeah, that was one of the things that they were worried about. And prior to the pandemic, we weren't getting those reimbursement levels because they hadn't figured out how it was going to work. The biggest question that CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, is trying to work out is a telemedicine visit reimbursed at the same rate as an in-person visit. And until they kind of figure that out, we're kind of in, in this limbo. And the reason why paying attention to what CMS does is so important is that our private insurers tend to follow what CMS does. So if CMS says, okay, we're going to cover telemedicine visit the same as an in-person visit, then the private insurers will likely follow. And if not, we'll see what happens. It is interesting. I know that there are some insurance companies that have built in telemedicine into their 
programs. So the insurance company that I work with, I get Teladoc as part of my coverage. And for the longest time, I didn't have a primary care physician. I just, if I needed something, I just made a Teladoc appointment. I think there's a lot of gaps to fill, especially in, in the telehealth industry. I think there's a lot of question marks and these question marks essentially translate to risk. And you've mentioned a few risks already just now. I think logistics is a very big risk. You talked about insurance. You talked about the cost that comes with it. What do you think is the biggest risk for retail investors out there investing in a telehealth or telemedicine company? I suppose we covered the big ones, but for me, it's just that this whole space becomes very commoditized and there are many players in telehealth. I'm also a teledoc investor and I do think there are other aspects to their service perhaps sets them apart and gives them a path to sustainable revenues in the future, particularly around the Lavongo acquisition and the kind of capabilities that they brought into the firm with that partnership. But if you just look at the pure remote clinician aspect, well, there are many, many providers and perhaps the, the behemoth here on the horizon for firms like Teladoc is Amazon Care, which is only available in a subset of states today only to Amazon employees and to employees of partner companies that Amazon care service, but Amazon have the opportunity to really drive prices down quite significantly while preserving health outcomes. And that could be a big risk for any investor in a firm like Teladoc. I agree that commoditization is likely. There are so many different telehealth companies, even small little ones that you've never heard of. They have an app and, and people are using it. So I do think there will be a lot of consolidation at some point and we'll see who shakes out. The other interesting thing is that a lot of healthcare facilities are providing their own teleservice. And so whether or not they partner with a larger company like Teladoc, or they build out their own service, or they acquire or partner with one of these other companies that are private, aren't necessarily on our radars. That's a possibility too. So there's just a lot in this space. And, and again, the pandemic helped us see that this was possible and to see how it works. And so I think that a lot of physicians and hospital systems, medical systems are incorporating some sort of telemedicine, telehealth, and even remote patient monitoring into their practices. Luke mentioned something that's very interesting is the sustainability question, especially when it comes to growth. What do you think is a sustainable compound annual growth rate for telehealth companies or companies in this space? Because definitely we've seen a massive growth for a lot of these telehealth companies, and maybe it's because it's fueled by the pandemic. I want to use Teladoc as an example. By the way, full disclosure, I have a position in this company. I'm holding their Q4 earnings report with me. And just to highlight the growth in relation to the number of increased visit, possibly due to the exposure due to the pandemic, their fourth quarter revenue grew 45% year over year to 554.2 million. And total visits increased 41% to 4.4 million visits. Full-year revenue grew 86% year-over-year to $2,032.7 million, and total visits increased 38% to 15.4 million visits. Full-year 2022 revenue guidance of $2.55 to $2.65 billion, representing 25% to 30% growth. 
On the other hand, net loss narrowed significantly from $394 million in Q4 2020 to $11 million in Q4 2021. Net loss per basic and diluted share in the quarter was negative 0.07, an improvement from negative 3.07 in the prior year period. So it sounds like there's a new normal effect created. But once the pandemic is over, do you see this kind of growth sustaining for these telehealth or telemedicine companies? I think if we focus on Teladoc, I think it is quite an interesting story. And I haven't dug into the most recent numbers, but last time I looked, it did seem as though most of their growth was coming from increasing the revenue they earn from each customer more so than from adding incremental customers and they are growing but a a decreasing rate and so i do think there'll be a point where they service almost everybody that they're likely to today already something like 20 percent of americans have access to teladoc through their insurance company so they've already got an enormous part of the market so at some point, they are going to start running into the maximum penetration. And then from that point forwards, future growth is going to be dependent on how much they can continue to earn from each customer. So I, th- I think you're right to say there is quite an interesting CAGA here. And I've seen an estimate of sort of 30, 35% through to 2028. But as we do revert back to a new normal post pandemic, I really wouldn't be surprised as an investor. If we start to see well revenue growth slow, and then as a result of that, valuation multiples come down. So some of these companies might be nearing peak valuation already. Dana, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I actually agree with what Luke says. And I was also thinking one way that you know, these companies can help themselves and possibly grow is physician satisfaction. We have a lot of physicians that are coming out of the pandemic that are very much burnt out. And just making sure that the physicians, the clinicians that these companies attract and that they're taking care of those people such that they can kind of see growth. It's not necessarily like a customer gaining way, but just attracting the right clinicians and providing care by thinking about who is on staff and who's able to provide that care. That's fascinating insight, Don. We almost forget that our doctors are humans too. And just like getting burned out, you and I creating research reports and investigating companies every day, doctors are in a far more stressful situation. And you're right. If these technology platforms can make their life easier, then that's incredibly valuable. I do have a follow-up question on that. And I think it's a very important question. The question is, are physicians buying to this vision of telehealth and telemedicine? I think one of the concerns, if I was a physician, is getting the right equipment to the patient. Given that everything is diagnosed online, it's quite difficult to get the patient's accurate medical information in diagnosing the, the right symptoms. There are certainly a lot of devices that people have access to that can share information, just like your smartwatch and your phones. They are recording a lot of things, and now they have the capability of sending that information to clinicians. And patients have been sharing information with their physicians for quite some time. When you are having a video consultation with your doctor, 
you may not be able to show them everything. And so you do need that in-person component. But I think physicians that are attracted to this type of care are the physicians that want to do that kind of work and are able to do that kind of work. Lots of different people go to medical school for different reasons. And that's why they have this whole field of practice. And just like with any job that we take or any product that we use, we just find the right fit. And I think that telemedicine opens that up for clinicians to kind of find their own way to practice and find the one that works best for them. I suppose we talk sometimes about product market fit and there is a clear need for telehealth. But as we come out of the pandemic, that's been such a big impact on so many industries over the last two years. We really do have to settle into that new normal. And I think it's going to be interesting for investors in this space in particular to see how things settle down. Now, I'm very bullish on this space, but I'm probably going to be a little bit conservative with my telehealth investments just until there's a bit of a clearer roadmap to that new normal. That's a very fair assessment. I had a conversation with Simon in my podcast episode with him in terms of the infrastructure that's laid out for a disruptive technology or technology space. There's never infrastructure laid out for disruptive technology. And I agree with him. So what does it take in order for the telehealth and telemedicine sectors to really succeed long run? Is it more investing, more government support? Could it be the governing bodies? that need to maybe relax some of the regulations that these companies can continue to thrive and do a lot of research and development to help patients at a greater scale? So I have an answer to that. If you think about the communities that need the most care and that can really benefit the most from telemedicine, it's rural communities. So small little towns. So I live in Texas and it's a big state. There are lots of little towns and these towns are losing their community hospitals. People have to travel hours to see a doctor. And telemedicine has been wonderful for them. However, if you don't have the bandwidth such that you can have a video conversation with your physician, if you don't have the ability to upload images, right, you were talking about seeing things, taking pictures, showing things. If you don't have that infrastructure to be able to share and have those conversations, then you are limited. And I think that's where the people who can benefit the most from this technology may actually be at a disadvantage if we don't give them access to Wi-Fi or build outs in places where there's just a, a lot of open land. Totally support what Dana said. That's really important. The sort of democratization of healthcare. We can't forget about marginalized communities and just focus on the folk in the big cities. At the same time, though, maybe to come back to your question, Kelvin, what can we do to support this industry? I suppose if the demand is there, the industry is going to thrive and patients do seem to get a lot of value from telehealth consults uh, for all of the reasons that, that Dana shared. So I think if the demand is there and if regulation being HIPAA compliant, things like that, are in place and if the industry is able to continue to serve patients in a sustainable way if we come down to the bottom line delivering the same or better quality of care outcomes at lower cost well demand supply economics are going to make sure that this is a successful a continually growing space education plays a major part 
Luke, you mentioned product market fit. That's very interesting because biggest challenges is the time it takes to educate someone to use an online platform. And usually the, the biggest struggle comes from maybe the older generation and to convince them to use an online platform to get diagnosed by a physician online might take some time, especially convincing local physicians to change their way they make money from diagnosing patients. How long does it take to educate the physicians as well as the consumers? That's, that's a really interesting question. I guess we have to look at it through the lens of both the patients and the physicians. I suppose coming out of telemedicine, I think about my parents. It didn't take very long in the pandemic for them to become pretty familiar with using Zoom and communicating with myself and my family on WhatsApp, just adopting the tools that us younger people, I'm an old guy now, but the, the tools that we all take for granted. So I think if you're driven to that by a necessity like the pandemic, and occasionally, or for that period of time, that's been the only way to communicate with each other when we're in national lockdowns. Well, that necessity is going to drive you to figure it out. This stuff isn't complex, but maybe I'll let Dana take the physician side of the question because I think that is the more complex space. Healthcare doesn't move quickly. It just doesn't change very readily. It's just kind of built into their culture. And I think that's one of the hard things about technologies moving into healthcare and investors in the healthcare industry, not realizing just how slowly the healthcare industry adopts to change. That being said, every year there's a new graduating class of physicians. And yes, they're being trained by the older generations, but they all have smartphones in their pockets. They're using more technologies. And so I do think that we are going to see that change. And it's important for both of them, right? So clinicians know that they can communicate better with their patients by sending a text, like a HIPAA compliant text, or if their patients can call them or have a video chat when they're concerned about something, then they're able to provide the care that they want to give. And so I think that they'll be able to adopt to that. But that said, there are different types of clinicians. I've been at conferences where new types of technologies and new regulations were being discussed and older clinicians were just like, I might as well retire. I don't want to do this. And okay, fine. Again, the product market fit, you'll find your right person. I wanted to ask a question and I got it from my friend who works in the healthcare telehealth industry over here in Hong Kong. And he asked me this question, and I thought that maybe you could provide more insight, is who would be the biggest winner and loser if telehealth and telemedicine became widely utilized for the next decade? Is there a loser or does everyone win? I think that if people are able to get care, there is no loser, right? I mean, I mean that, that's the important thing. Everybody should be able to access some sort of care. And if they're doing that on telemedicine because that's what they need, then that's wonderful, right? I mean, if you think about things that limit people from getting the care that they need, and there are so many things, right? So maybe you don't have a car to get to a doctor's appointment. Maybe you don't have childcare or your work hours conflict with a doctor's appointment during office hours visit. 
and you can only get the care that you need, an appointment that you need in the middle of the night somewhere. Telemedicine is able to provide that because you have doctors in different time zones that are able to make that connection. So I think you're going to have many, many winners, just if people are able to access the care that they need. And hopefully it's not just reactive care, but like care making sure that more preventative care, especially if you are dealing with a chronic condition or an almost chronic condition. I'm thinking of type two diabetes. Like if you're able to work with somebody and figure out your help such that you don't need a lot of that extra care, then you have lots of winners. Maybe to build on Donna's point as well, I think preventative healthcare is incredibly important. And when we start going beyond telehealth and thinking about sort of med tech more generally, but also, you know, Donna mentioned integrating with wearables and other devices, maybe your blood pressure monitor that automatically uploads your result every day to your physician. Giving physicians the ability to monitor their patients at scale, enabled by machine learning techniques, suddenly we can start to intercept chronic conditions much earlier. And that's huge for the patient. And particularly, say, if we think about the obesity crisis in the Western world, if you can address someone's weight concerns much earlier and get them on a sort of sustainable path to having a healthy life, well, that's very significant in terms of other health outcomes they might be exposed to later if they go too far down that path. I think that's really important in terms of what you just said. I want to get to the investing side of it. When you evaluate companies in the telehealth and telemedicine space, what do you look for when it comes to whether a company is investable? I guess for me, if I think about my own investments in this sector, I'm looking for companies that really have a unique product that are positioned to address the sort of needs of the future. And as I think I said in the opening, we're all expecting to live longer, healthier lives. And it's no good living to 100 if you last 30 years of your life severely disabled or you have very severe mental health issues. So I think companies that can help us have that longer, healthier life, that's really the kind of capabilities I'm looking for. And then really, if we sort of turn on the real analytical side of the investing lens, there are many companies here that have fantastic stories, but are they actually profitable? Are they good quality investments? So I think having a clear look for continually growing revenues and also a profitable business model where the company isn't just continually reinvesting in its capabilities, but it also has the ability to turn on earnings at, at the right point in its life cycle. Quality of life is really important. And you don't want to, I don't know, maybe you do, but I was going to say, you don't want to necessarily live for hundreds of years if you're in bed and, and can't enjoy it. So how do you improve quality of life? And thinking of businesses, just making sure that the companies really understand the healthcare industry and like listen to not just patients that might be consumers of the product, but then also the, the care teams, the clinicians. And so just really understanding the healthcare industry. I've seen so many technology companies try to fix healthcare by putting a technology band-aid on it. It doesn't work if you don't understand the healthcare industry. I've, I've mentioned a little bit just how they're slow to adopt 
change very, very set in their ways and don't necessarily want to include new things. But if you really understand the process of the healthcare industry and, and what every little component of the industry does, then you can create that solution. And so companies that are actually working with their partners, you know, and, and partners being the clinicians, partners being patients to really provide a good solution. I think that those are the companies that are going to be the ones that stand out and are most successful. The other things that you need to figure out in healthcare is reimbursement and making sure that you get paid. You may have a great solution or you might offer great service, but if you, you know, don't have those reimbursement models, if CMS isn't reimbursing for that, if you don't have good contracts with insurance providers, then you're not going to have those earnings that you want to see. So that's certainly something to look for and making sure that the healthcare companies are able to kind of figure out that financial aspect of it as well as the, the technology and that product market fit, which is so important. Both of you mentioned quality is very important. For me, I don't think profitability is much of an issue. I mean, Teladoc is not making any profit at all. They're still at a negative EPS. Long term, there's real vision. And the reason why I really believe in the sectors in telehealth and telemedicine is because it really does fill in a very big problem in, in US and maybe in, in other countries, especially what I'm seeing in Hong Kong is that because of the pandemic, there's not enough hospital beds and people have to sleep outside of the hospital and they're going to get a flu, not from the pandemic, it's from the cold. And it's really sad to see. And being educated in the States for over four years, I do see a major problem where I told Simon this, every time I get sick, I go see a physician. I would think that I would get my medication, same time, same place where I see my doctor. But unfortunately, I have to go to a CVS store to get my prescription. And that's a major pain point for a lot of patients. And I just feel like there's the major gap to be filled. I'm just curious to know what would really flip the switch to propel these disruptive industries forward? Is it the governing bodies that we particularly should pay attention to? I think there's a major problem that we really need to solve. And I think there's a lot of challenges, but even for an investor, it's not easy to understand the healthcare and, and having someone like you, Dana, to shed some light in terms of what we should be paying attention to is quite important for all the retail investors out there. I don't know if it's government that's going to help that problem. The issue of you go to your doctor and then you have to go to your pharmacist and just all the different things. I think that's going to be innovative companies and partnerships. And there are some companies that are working to solve those problems. But again, they need to embed themselves in the healthcare industry and, and make sure it's a good fit. The question is, does healthcare as a whole want to see that change? It's not necessarily a convenient experience for you, the patient, but changing the whole healthcare industry is, is taking some time. And, and there's the Value Institute at Dell Medical School. And so again, I'm in Texas. So at UT Austin, there's the Value Institute, and they are actually working to educate the healthcare industry about value-based care and centering service around the patient. They're just creating this. So programs where a patient comes in for their appointment and they see all their doctors at that time. 
So normally you have to see your cardiologist, you need to see your primary care physician, maybe you see your dermatologist. And so each type of thing is a different visit. And maybe they're like days apart, weeks apart. The Value Institute is trying to center, change that dynamic and center it around patients. So the patient comes in and all their doctors see them. And then all their doctors are communicating. So if you're taking one medicine and you're taking another medication for something else, there may be cross-talking and the pharmacist is supposed to catch that, but may or may not. I mean, it's really complex. In order to get what you're looking for, we need to break down the existing system and rebuild it. And that just takes time, especially because the healthcare industry is resistant to that type of disruptive change. It's no better in the UK, really. You've got a very disconnected medical profession. I'm certainly not an expert, but my experience as a user of the medical services your GP doesn't necessarily talk to your specialists and the pharmacy, they just receive kind of written orders from you. So who's really in charge of your healthcare? It's you. And if you're not able to kind of take charge of that and own it, well, perhaps you don't get the best health outcomes. I think it's great to hear that example in Texas, Dana. Hopefully technology and sort of big data and machine learning techniques can start to join things up in a better way. And also look for insights perhaps that are buried in the data that perhaps we're not seeing today because we're not taking a whole holistic picture. Mindful of Dana's time, go into more of the humbling part of my podcast is to really understand some of the biggest takeaways from your investing experience and maybe investing in the healthcare industry. What are some of the biggest learnings or takeaways for being in this industry for so long? I'm a long-term investor. So healthcare is a good fit just because things take time. And you might have a new technology or like a a new approach, a new idea. And you think, you know, like, oh, this is going to change things. Like we're going to see a change. I think about the human genome project and like when we sequence the human genome over 20 years ago, we're thinking like, okay, we now we have all this information. We can really personalize medicine. We can solve all these problems. And 20 years later, we're still trying to figure things out. Like it just takes time. And so I think that when you're investing in a company and you're looking at that, think about that time horizon and include that in your investment thesis and in your portfolio and know that healthcare is slow. You may see those great big changes, especially if you're investing in a biotech company that is going to make a really big impact at some point, but it, it takes time to see that and you need to be prepared and be patient. That's a fantastic lesson. I think investing in any sector, I think the impatient investor often sow the seeds of their own doom, perhaps. Investing is a lifetime habit. It's not something that you do to make a quick buck. And I think if you have those expectations, well, not only are you going to be disappointed, but actually as a result of really not seeing the quick returns that you maybe were hoping for, you'll end up doing things that actively damage your long-term returns. And Luke, before we wrap up, I'm curious to know what is some of your biggest learnings, especially investing in so many different industries, as I'm aware, what would be the biggest takeaway for you? I suppose in health tech in particular, I'm certainly a guy who perhaps invests more with his heart than his head sometimes. And it's very easy, I think, to fall in love with a story around a company and perhaps lose sight of the fundamentals. 
So one of the things that I found incredibly valuable about joining Dana and the other seven investing advisors is getting insight into their own very robust processes for analyzing companies. And so I, I think what I'm learning even from this conversation with Dana today is as an ethically driven investor, I would say my main takeaway in investing in health tech is it's easy to get caught up in the mission, but focus on the numbers at the same time. Some of the risks that we've discussed today, I think, are very pertinent right now in this space. Thank you, Dana and Luke. It's such a privilege to have both of you on my show to share your insights on the healthcare industry. I'm sure we've all learned a lot. So that wraps up the episode. So thank you for tuning in. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast or want to find more about us, please subscribe to our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath and on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We look forward to have you join our next episode. Thank you for listening.